So welcome back, everyone. Um, yes, hope you had time for a rest and a stretch. I'd suggest we start our afternoon again with just a short practice period. So again, just finding a, a posture of embodied intentionality, posture of wakefulness, softness, groundedness. Mindful of the space around you, the light, the sounds. And mindful of the landscape within, the thoughts, the moods, the body sensations. Sense of arriving. Inhabiting this moment, inhabiting the body. And sensing the whole body breathing in. The whole body breathing out. So aligning our attention with that process. Sense of resting within the breathing.
So I'd like to <clears throat> begin this afternoon by some reflections on this second limb of awakening, the second of these treasures. The Pali is Dhamma Vichaya, or investigation of the Dhammas. I think it's a long term to describe understanding what is happening around us and what is happening within us just now. We could almost say that there's two dimensions, or interrelated dimensions of this investigation. One of them is really a life investigation, a life of our own world of experience, um, investigating that. And the other is the investigation of the teachings and applying them to our lives. One of my friends describes it as an affectionate curiosity. An affectionate curiosity. Now, this is something more than just a conceptual investigation, but deeply experiential. The Buddha said that investigation is the most important factor of awakening, that it's the forerunner of insight and liberation. The image that is used is the one I referred to earlier, the image of the surgeon palpating a wound to discover what is going on. So too we learn with mindfulness to touch and to palpate every moment of experience with an, an affectionate eye, an affectionate inquiry. What is actually going on beneath our concepts and our assumptions. And you'll note that we that I spoke some to this also in the discussion on mindfulness. But it's really a, a deep questioning of our lives and of ourselves and how, how things work. Why do we think the way we do? Why do we act and react and perceive in the ways that we do? What really are the, the roots of our opinions, our views? And perhaps the most important question of all is, why do we struggle? And how would we cease to struggle? What makes us suffer? And what makes us free? I think these are important questions for all of us as we begin to probe our experience, begin to understand the way that our world of experience is shaped. You know, the, the Buddha uses this word loka in two ways. It translates as world. And one way is the, the world around us, the world of conditions that we are all part of, that we are all touched by, that we all touch. And the other way that he uses this word loka or world is our world, our personal world of experience that is being shaped and formulated moment to moment. Moment to moment. You know, the Buddha was passionate about understanding the architecture of distress. And he said, if we're going to understand the architecture of distress, we also need to understand the architecture of our world of experience. A world that changes so frequently, 
you know, from a happy world to a sad world, a despairing world to a confident world, a depressed world to an optimistic world. Our world of experience is changing so often. And there are so many factors involved in those changes. The feeling tones of sensory impressions, our histories, our patterns, our moods, um, the ways that we're touched by the world, triggering you know, reactions and responses. There are so many ways that our world is being shaped. And this is so important to understand and can be understood. With investigation, again, there is um, there, there's a, a visiting and a refining, I would say, of our capacity for discernment. Without this investigation, it seems that we're, we're bound to a knowing that is rooted in history. And we're also bound to reactions that are also rooted in that history. We can see the repetition, can't we? We see so much repetition within ourselves. Repetition of our patterns of aversion, anxiety, greed, dissociation, agitation that can be triggered by a single perception. And, you know, sometimes without awareness, we, we find ourselves asking, you know, how did I end up here in a place very far from where I wish to be? And we often say, how did I end up here again? You know, some of you will be familiar with this word samsara, samsara, um, which describes this world of, of repetition, essentially. It translates as walking in circles, walking in circles. And how often with, with some despair and some judgment, we find ourselves walking in those circles. We meet someone again I found difficult, and there we are again in the same pattern of reactivity. We're adults and we go home on holidays to our families. And guess what happens? You know, we find, <laughs> find ourselves suddenly entrenched in these childhood patterns of, of reactivity and mood. And we wonder, will this ever end? You know, will we ever stop working, walking in circles? When we find ourselves saying, I know you, or I know myself, we can become interested in why this is so. And is there another way of seeing? Can we change the lens through which we see ourselves and the world? And this is what these seven limbs of awakening are really concerned with, changing the lens of how we see ourselves, how we see others, and how we see the world. Some years ago, I was in a cafe in London, and I tell this story frequently, and you know, there was a group of children racing around quite wildly and quite noisily, and you could hear the or sense the levels of irritation rising in the cafe, you know, who are these kids? You know, where are their parents? You know, why aren't they stopping them? And, you know, I could feel a little bit of this myself, you know, thinking, you know, I just came here for lunch, you know, not for a circus, you know. And then I thought, well, what is going on here? And I, I stood up and I looked around this partition that, that partially separated the rooms of the cafe. 
and I, I saw a group of parents speaking to each other in sign language. And I realized, you know, they couldn't hear their children. You know, they, they couldn't hear the levels of sound. And I could feel that perception, my world shift inwardly from this shouldn't be happening of, you know, why wouldn't this be happening? You know, there's so many times that we find ourselves, our perceptions are being changed, but often only if there is curiosity and we're willing to change because we can, we can hold so tightly to our knowing or our thinking that we know. This investigation again is drawing upon this quality of discernment that we spoke about this morning, about where things take us, where things go, what are their roots, but mostly what are their outcomes? If I travel around this circle one more time of anxiety, what's going to happen? You know, neuroscience tells us we're going to travel around that circle even more easily next time. So investigation beneath our views, a curiosity about why repetition is actually taking place. When we begin to cultivate investigation, it is a curiosity about our personal world of experience, but it's also a, a curiosity about the Dharma, about the teaching. I think investigation takes us into the territory of understanding the, the universal natural laws that we are all part of. And this is so central to the development of insight. When we look closely at our experience, we, we deeply see and we cannot ignore the reality, even though at times we may wish to, that there is nothing that is static. There is nothing that is unmoving. There is nothing that is eternal. There is nothing that is permanent. That change is written into everything we touch, taste, encounter, see, and experience. An investigation asks the important questions. You know, what are the implications of that in our lives? What would it be like to live in the light of impermanence? Of knowing that nothing is static and nothing will last. It's not about becoming depressed or feeling that life is meaningless. It's actually pointing us in the direction of peace and of harmony. Can I live in accord with that universal law? Outwardly and inwardly. It really means to cling to nothing. This is the implication of impermanence. When we look closely at our lives, we begin to understand that this, what the Buddha meant by dukkha. And I think dukkha for most of us is Pali word that's translated in so many different ways. Suffering, by the way, is the worst translation. Um, unsatisfactoriness, inherent, intrinsic unsatisfactoriness of all things, in that things are unable intrinsically to provide us with lasting happiness. 
dukkha. I prefer these days to translate it as vulnerability. As human beings, we are vulnerable to change. You know, as living beings, we are we are vulnerable to the, the fact of the instability of conditions. As human beings, we're, we're vulnerable to what the Buddha describes as the pain of pain. You know, aging, sickness, death, loss. As human beings, we're vulnerable to uh, wanting to deny, uh, wanting to deny non-self. We are, we are vulnerable to believing that there is a permanent, somehow enduring me, pilot in the cockpit, ever-present, reliable. The, the word dukkha, the, the, I think the literal translation of the word dukkha is messy space. It's a messy space we live in. You know? We can't rely on things staying the same. You know, we can't control the world of conditions. We, we can't live forever. Um, we can't make things stay. So we are vulnerable to loss. None of us are exempt. None of us are entirely in control of the world of conditions. I think if anything that the last two years has taught us, it is this. The pandemic taught us so much that, you know, all our ideas of being in control of the world of conditions, all of our ideas about being able to rely on things for stability, all that camouflage just got stripped away, didn't it? And we all found ourselves together living in this collective story of vulnerability. The Buddha also speaks about another dimension of dukkha, which is sankata dukkha. The patterns of reactivity, the hindrances, the busyness, and the avoidance mechanisms we use to try and find an exemption from dukkha. This is the reactive patterns. Aging, illness, death, change, and insubstantiality. These are all woven into our lives. Reactivity, fear, aversion are not. These are not woven into our lives. This can end. And when the Buddha says, I teach just one thing, that there is dukkha and the end of dukkha, this is the end of dukkha he was speaking about. This extra layer of reactivity and distress. So change, dukkha, and non-self. The Buddha speaks about these as the three universal laws. Looking deeply, we do see that my views of who I am change, and they're also born of conditions. There's no eternal pilot in the cockpit. There's only changing views. There's only changing views of self. The I am happy, I'm a failure, I'm successful, I'm lovable, I'm unlovable. There is no constancy here. Sometimes there's a lot of repetition, I would admit. But there's no constancy. There's no eternal pilot, but there are many changing views of self. 
how much have you seen this in your life? You know, you look back over your lifetime. Have you ever looked back through through family photo albums and seen yourself? You know, oh, there I am as a child. You know, I was so happy. You know, or I was so unhappy. I was so lonely, or I was so loved. And there I grew into a teenager. You know, and I I was so rebellious, or I was so conforming. And then I grew into a, a hippie. You know, and I was sure I was going to be a hippie forever. You know, and then I was a student, and I was sure I was going to have a certain life path. And how much has changed? The things that we, the views of who I am that we thought were going to last, going to sustain, where are they now? Some of them may still be with you. Many of them may just be distant memories. What we do see is that the changing views of who we are is pretty much determined by what we cling to and what we identify with. Whether it's the body, whether it's a mood or an emotion, whether it's a thought pattern, whether it's a role or an identity. The Buddha certainly didn't talk about no self. Talked about non-self. And it's so important to make that distinction. He's not talking about erasure or annihilation of self. He's talking about understanding that there is no independent self-existence. Ourselves do change. Our sense of self does change, often in ways that's quite appropriate and quite wholesome. When I go to the supermarket, I don't deliver Dharma talks to the cashier. You know, when I'm with my children or my grandchildren, you know, I'm a parent. I don't do that with my neighbor. So there are changing views of self that are quite appropriate and responsive to the conditions of the moment. And there are changing views of self that are solidified by clinging and by identification. We need to see this distinction and this difference. You know, you are always going to have a self. The Buddha had a self, you know, uh, you know, he had an identity um, that allowed him to flourish, allowed him to teach. But you can be free of clinging. You can be free of fixed views of who you are, of who I am. And there's a great deal of freedom to be found in that. You know, we think of the, a fixed view of self as, as something almost akin to a prison, you know, that we are locked in. And this is what we investigate. You know, this is what we investigate. Who am I? You know, how am I now? What is shaping who I believe myself to be just now? This is what we investigate. I often think of these, these universal laws of, of change, of instability, of vulnerability, of non-self. I think about them as being the, the unarguables. You know, these are true in my life, they're true in your life, they're true in the life of everyone we know. I think of them just as being the unarguables. And there's so much relief and freedom in putting down our arguments with the unarguables. 
you know, putting down that argument that says, you know, this isn't fair, this shouldn't be happening, you know, life should be different than it is right now, you should be different than it, than you are right now, I should be different than I am right now, putting down our arguments with the unarguables. I think there are really profound implications for how we live when our understanding of change and conditionality and non-self really sinks into our bones, really sinks into our bones, to live those insights, to live those understandings, then I think there is an end to clinging, contractedness and fear. I think as we begin to, to loosen the solidity of our perceptions and our knowing. I, I feel there's a real wonder in learning to see anew. James Blake, poet once said, when the doors of perception are cleansed, the world appears as it is, infinite. When the doors of perception are very much clouded or distorted by clinging or by fixed views, the world doesn't appear infinite. It appears very finite. Investigation encourages curiosity. A curiosity about life, about ourselves. Investigating the Dharma's understanding, really deeply understanding, how our world of experience is being born and shaped moment to moment by the skillful or by the unskillful, by the binding or by the liberating. And we know the difference. You know, when our world of experience is being shaped by, by clinging or, or by aversion or by craving, this is when we suffer. This is when we find ourselves distressed. When our world of experience is being shaped by, by integrity, by kindness, by compassion, by understanding, this is when we end suffering. We learn to, to live. We learn to live these insights. We learn to live in the light of these insights. There's a quote from the Tibetan tradition. It says, this mind, this body, does the bidding of the wholesome and the unwholesome, the skillful and the unskillful. Use wisely, this, use unwisely, this mind, this body ties us to samsara, to walking in circles. Use wisely, this mind, this body takes us to nirvana, to liberation. I find this such a, a profound teaching of how, how this mind, this body is being shaped, what it's, what it's being guided by and where it takes us. What we see is that the hindrance factors we spoke about this morning really are repetitions of patterns of distress and cycles of confusion that have only one direction which is more confusion. 
and the Bojangas also only have one direction, which is the unshakable liberation of the heart. In this process of our world of experience being built, the, the Buddha offered you know, several, several cognitive chains that we can all trace in our experience that help us to understand how our world of experience is being shaped. One of these chains, he says, what we contact, when there is contact, there is feeling. When there is feeling tone, we perceive. What we perceive, we proliferate about and dwell upon. What we dwell upon, we cling to, and it becomes a shape of our mind and the shape of our world. Contact is really something very basic. It, it's something part of the human, human life. It's, it's ethically neutral. The eyes meet a sight and there's seeing. The ears meet a sound and there's hearing. The mind meets a thought and there's thinking. And yet each of those sights, each of those sounds, each of those tastes, those touches, those smells, those thoughts has a feeling tone of being either pleasant or unpleasant. That's pre-verbal, imprinted on consciousness. And yet upon that feeling tone, it's followed by perception. Ah, it's a tree. Oh, it's a bus. Oh, it's a lawnmower. Oh, it's the sound of a bird. Oh, it's, it's, it's sadness or it's anxiety. What we perceive, we think about and proliferate about. What we proliferate about we tend to dwell upon, you know, we tend to dwell in those thoughts, make our home in those thoughts and repetitions. What we dwell upon, we cling to, and this becomes the shape of our mind. It's another way of framing this, which is more, which is also more helpful. What we contact, we feel. There's feeling. When there's feeling, there is perception. This we can investigate. We can investigate those perceptions. We can understand. We can care for and respond appropriately and be free within. Take a, a moment to pause there. See if there's any questions about this limb of investigation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.